Facebook blocks its news feeds in Australia in response to demands by Canberra that social media companies pay for the journalism they publish on their platforms. The firebrand right-wing radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh has died at the age of 70. We'll assess his influence on the trajectory and tone of political discourse in the United States. And if many retailers feel there's a hill to climb in luring shoppers back to the high street once the world reopens, then central London is about to get just that. All will be explained before the end of the programme. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 18th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and with us today to discuss some of the day's big news stories from around the world are Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello who's in London for us and Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan who is in New York City. Carlotta, Henry, great to have you both with us on the programme today. How's the week treated you so far? Carlotta, we'll begin with you. It's been quite a good week actually. The sun is shining in London, uh, which uh, we were very much waiting for to have a bit more of sunlight. Uh, at, on Monocle's editorial floor, it's been a busy couple of days as well. Uh, we've celebrated this week uh, the 14th anniversary uh, of Monocle magazine. So there was an opportunity to look back at some of the favourite memories of the past couple of years um, with some of the editors and correspondents and even some um, journalists who no longer work full time for Monocle, but are still, of course, very much in the Monocle family. So it's been quite nice to hear everyone's, you know, um, favourite memory uh, of uh, their time here uh, at Monocle. Yeah, it was nice, Carlotta, when we recorded that programme the other day to sort of think back through some of the experiences uh, we've all had here at Monocle. It's pretty nice to be a bit nostalgic every now and then, isn't it? And Henry, how are you getting on in New York? Carlotta touched on the weather in London there, but the weather in the US is, is making headlines, to put it lightly, at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, it's snowing pretty pretty heavily here, Thomas. I'm just uh, looking out the window now uh, and 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 admiring snowfall. Slightly uh, anxious about my trip into Manhattan later to go to the physiotherapist. There's a risk that I might incur even more injuries on the way there than those I have, which I'm I'm going there to try to fix. Uh, so fingers crossed, I, I uh, arrive there in one piece. Well, get your snowshoes on, Henry, and we'll wish you a safe journey. Henry Reese Sheridan and Carlotta Ribello, thank you to the two of you for being with us today. Well, if you are a Facebook user in Australia, you'll have found one notable thing missing from your feed if you logged on this morning. Facebook has blocked news content from its site in Australia. It's retaliation towards a piece of legislation being discussed by Australia's parliament that would force social media companies to pay for the news and the journalism that they publish on their websites. Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison responded by saying that his country wouldn't be intimidated by tech's big players. Well, Karen Middleton is the senior political correspondent for Australia's Saturday newspaper and she spoke to us on the line from Canberra on today's edition of The Briefing. The government has designed what it's calling a media bargaining code. It's decided that the big tech giants, particularly Facebook and Google, but a number of other organisations gaining revenue that rightfully belongs to media organisations by promoting the content of media organisations, so the news content, on their websites for free. Now, it's a moot point who started it really. That was the genesis of this current fight. The media organisations themselves are frustrated at the loss of revenue 
new to these tech giants with the digital age, but they do have pages on Facebook for sure and they certainly access Google. And so the, the giants are saying, well, you put your content on our website. If you, if you take Facebook, for an example, they're saying you put your content there. We didn't ask to host it. We're just a carrier, a conveyor of it. So why should we pay you for it? But what the government has done is set up a mechanism that is partway through the parliament and will become law once it passes the second house of parliament expected next week that will effectively force these tech giants into a negotiation to pay the media companies. Google, interestingly, has already taken that step. It called the government's bluff and it's now negotiating. Karen Middleton there speaking to us from Canberra a little earlier today. Carlotta, this is a pretty extraordinary move by Facebook, um, a pretty aggressive one as well. Outline, if you could, the, the context here. We heard Karen lay it out for us just there and perhaps explain why you think Facebook has responded just so aggressively at this stage of the, the process of getting this new piece of legislation through Parliament in Australia. Yeah, so this is all part of um, a proposed law in Australia, which essentially would make tech giants uh, pay for news content on their platform. Um, this is basically to address the inequality between uh, revenue models, between what we can call the traditional publishers uh, and the digital publishers, you know, leveling out the playing field between those two. You know, um, of every 100 Australian dollars spent on digital advertising in Australian media these days, around 81 uh, Australian dollars goes to the likes of Google and Facebook. So we can just with that small amount understand you know the wider impact and consequences now what i find quite interesting about um this uh, move by facebook today uh, which basically meant that people you know woke up by trying to go to any um media company page uh, on facebook uh, of australian media companies and they're everything has been deleted. There's no posts there. Um, what I find interesting is that Facebook Facebook is essentially reacting to a law that hasn't come into effect yet. So, you know, they say they're responding to this um, sort of, uh, to this law and trying to kind of, in a way, show um, that a ban is a way to highlight the necessity of not putting this law in place. But it hasn't happened yet. And I don't know what sort of precedent does that set um, when it comes to, you know, a state trying to take control of, of other industries or trying to um, even out things. It was interesting to hear as well uh, from the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, basically saying that this move will not intimidate um, his government, that f- the decision by Facebook of blocking news feeds to users will not uh, change um, the government's position. And he went uh, as far as, of course, to make a comparison and use uh, and then analogy with Facebook's own interface where we friend or unfriend people saying that Facebook's actions to unfriend Australia today, uh, cutting off essential information services on health and emergency services, were as arrogant as they were disappointing. Those were the words earlier today uh, of the Australian Prime Minister. And Henry, a few weeks ago, three of Canada's major newspapers left their front pages blank as a protest um, in a similar vein to what we're seeing unfold in Australia at the moment against the revenue social media sites make from publishing and sharing journalism that they paid nothing towards the production of. How to bolster dwindling ad revenues in a news context is a a wearily familiar theme by now for many of us. But do you think that the fact that Facebook has reacted as it has done today does in fact show that Canberra might indeed be onto something in terms of how the news we consume is at the end of the day paid for? Well, I think that 
the what strategies will be effective in terms of regulating these tech companies will vary greatly from country to country. A lot of the attention uh, that's been paid to this story has uh, focused uh, on 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 uh, it being kind of a blow to Facebook's biz- business model uh, uh, and and a little bit of a PR gaffe on the part of of that company. Less attention has been paid to the substance of the law which is being proposed by Australia itself, uh, and and it. it emerges in no small part out of the relatively close relationship that the Australian media establishment has with Australian politicians in general and the current Conservative government in particular, uh, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp uh, being being uh, chief among the organisations which are cheek by jowl uh, with a lot of Australian Conservative politicians, Rupert Murdoch himself being Australian. Um, uh, and aside from that uh, kind of uh, uh, specific occupational or professional set of relationships, Australia as a country uh, is relatively comfortable with a, with with interventionist policies. You know, particularly compared to uh, North American countries and the United States of America, it has quite a, a fair degree of soft protectionism for its for its big banks. Uh, it maintains very high wages. Uh, it's generally a political and social atmosphere which is happy with the government intervening. Uh, with the market, uh, that might be something which can be implemented or a dynamic that could be replicated in the European Union uh, to an extent, Canada to an extent. It's difficult to see the same kind of approach flying in America uh, where journalism and journalists tend to have less influence, uh, uh, I suppose, in, in, in the halls of power uh, from a lobbying perspective and also a culture which is much less comfortable uh, with, with government regulation of market forces. So I think that as other countries attempt to, uh, to greater or lesser degrees, uh, uh, curb uh, the, the, the tech giants, uh, and particularly uh, in relation to their distribution of, of, of news media content, you're going to see a lot of variation depending on, on, on local particularities across the world. I just uh, would like to say something off the back of that, Henry, because you touched upon something that is quite interesting, which is, you know, uh, a lot of people in Australia as a reaction to, you know, the ban that effectively, well, went into effect now um, by Facebook, d- highlighted something that is quite important, which is one, we're in the middle of a pandemic and a lot of people do use Facebook's um, profile pages of, um, you know, um, official news sources and news outlets to get their information and to share important health information with um, with their friends and family. But also, you know, if you ban news sites on Austra- in Australia, which is what Facebook has done, you really leave um, room open for untrusted and unverified information to circulate. Uh, I mean, that already happens, um, even with, uh, with news sites on there. But once you remove that, who is there to act, you know, as the gatekeeper? Uh, you know, who's there to make sure that um, fake news or, and false information or misinformation um, is, uh, can be countered with facts when people won't be able to, you know, um, use uh, the profiles of these uh, media companies to post articles that debunk that. I just think it, it is quite a dangerous territory um, if this continues instead of just being you know, some sort of power play to try to get the government to change tactic. 
Well, next here on the late edition, let's look at the US, where Rush Limbaugh, who was one of the most divisive voices in US talk radio, died yesterday at the age of 70. His syndicated talk radio show, which he launched in the 1980s, garnered huge audiences, and his brand of furious anti-left commentary, often untethered to the truth, is credited by some as having created the environment that allowed someone like Donald Trump to become president. One of those who has made just that argument is the Washington Post journalist Brian Rosenwald, who wrote the book Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. He spoke to Meet the Writers here on Monocle 24 back in 2019, and here he explains how Limbaugh went from jovial disc jockey to right-wing firebrand. He got on the air and he was applying the same shtick and the same performance art that he had applied to being a DJ in the 1970s. He had spun Elton John records in a bunch of different places. And he gets on the air and people start calling and saying, thank God you're on the air, Rush. Thank God we finally have a voice. And he realized very quickly that... Part of his appeal was his conservative values. And we're not talking about someone who had been overly political. When he goes to Sacramento in 1984 as a um, talk radio host, some enterprising reporter goes and checks and finds out that he had never been registered to vote in more than a decade that he had been eligible. So he is not someone who was all that political, but the values he's sharing or what he heard at his table, you know, growing up from his dad. And he realizes that these values are part of what's drawing people into his show. At least initially, it's funny. You never know exactly what you're going to get with Rush. It's, you know, very different. It's, it's entertaining. But with time, he realized that people were really crying out for conservative political commentary that pulled no punches and that really took it to the left. Brian Rosenwald there speaking to us on the rise of Rush Limbaugh, who died yesterday at the age of 70. Carlotta, Rush Limbaugh was a hugely divisive figure. I don't think it's disrespectful to say that he was uh, reviled as much by some as he was adored by others. What's the reaction been to his death on both sides of the political argument in the US, as you've seen it reported today? Yeah, I don't think it is um, incorrect or disrespectful to at least call him controversial. Um, the, uh, across both sides of the political spectrum, there's been completely different reactions. You know, when we think, for example, uh, he was a, um, a huge supporter of former President Donald Trump. Uh, he even was awarded during uh, Trump's presidency um, uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Trump, speaking to Fox News after the announcement of his passing, was basically saying that he was, you know, very brave and fighting uh, until the end. Uh, former President George W. Bush was also um, uh, known to be uh, a fan and, if I'm not mistaken, had been uh, on Russia's show uh, as well in the past. Um, and he released a statement uh, saying that, you know, while he was brash at times, controversial and always opinionated, he spoke his mind as a voice for millions of Americans and approached each day with gusto. And then we can look, you know, at the other complete side of the spectrum and you know uh, 
the the husband of U.S. Secretary of Transport, Pete Buttigieg, um, reacted to the news, uh, basically with a by posting a photo uh, of him and his husband kissing. Um, and this is, of course, a dig to Russia's comments during the Democratic primaries when referring to the then candidate Pete Buttigieg, saying basically that it was going to look really bad to have a 37-year-old gay guy kissing his husband on stage next to Mr. Man Donald Trump. And this is, of course, a quote. Um, and basically, uh, you know, having very anti-LGBT uh, uh, conversations uh, with his millions of loyal listeners. And of course, you know, we it is okay to recognize the importance he has had in conservative media uh, in the US. Uh, the problem is when the line of conservative crosses to extremism. Um, but, you know, uh, his his comments and his radio shows will speak for himself. But it is difficult to remember someone who's known for statements like this, um, talking about, you know, women live longer than men because their lives are easier, um, basically denying um, any responsibility um, by Caucasians in slavery. Uh, he uh, also... Uh, was one of the many media uh, commentators and radio talk show hosts uh, fomenting the conspiracy theories about Barack Obama's uh, actual place of birth and uh, whether or not he was actually a legitimate president. Um, So yeah, let's settle on controversial, Tom, shall we? And Henry, are there changes afoot to what talk radio in the US is doing right now? We saw a few days, for example, after the pro-Trump riot on the grounds of the Capitol in Washington on January the 6th, that at least one major talk radio company told its hosts, the, the people who present its shows, not to repeat Donald Trump's assertion that November's presidential election had been fraudulent and had been rigged against him. Have calls like that, do you think, to temper the so-called shock jocks worked or are the the audiences for these programs still looking to hear the kind of angry freewheeling rhetoric rush limbaugh made his calling card well i looked up the um most listened to radio shows in the u.s just before the show uh and nine of the top 20 are, are conservative talk radio um which I'm not sure what I expected. I suppose I haven't been paying so much attention to it in the last few years. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's still strikingly uh, a strikingly popular format, at least among people who listen to radio. Um, one phenomenon that I'm interested in, which I think is connected to the popularity of talk radio, uh, is the popularity of, of political podcasts, uh, particularly among I think, a younger demographic than listen to conventional terrestrial talk radio in the United States. Um, there are lots of political, uh, excuse me, a lot of conservative podcasts which are doing very well. But I think more strikingly, there are several uh, left-wing podcasts um, which come from a from a, a so-called dirtbag left perspective. Uh, this is a, a leftist perspective which uh, uh, d- doesn't uh, afford as much respect to uh, concepts of civility and political correctness uh, that the liberal establishment do. Um, there are several of these podcasts which have become phenomenally popular among young politically engaged people raise a lot of money uh, on, on, on crowdsourced funding platforms like Patreon uh, and offer essentially a left-wing version of what 
right-wing talk radio has always offered revealing an appetite for that kind of engagement from a left-wing perspective on the part of of young people in the US. And these shows tend to be ostracised and hardly mentioned by mainstream uh, liberal media. Um, But I suppose what, what they go to illustrate, what their popularity goes to illustrate, is that... A desire for um, not pulling punches or saying, I suppose, in a in a in a sometimes crudely honest way, what you think isn't a partisan phenomenon. Uh, it's something which which cuts across the ideological divide, and I think that the, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how uh, that decentralised media landscape and it, it, the fact that that uh, register of engagement has. Uh, uh, reared its head on the left, how that's going to shape uh, the kind of dialogue within the parties and between the parties in America over the next few years. We'll finally hear on the late edition, high streets in many cities around the world remain eerily empty. But London has availed a design for something it hopes will lure shoppers back to Oxford Street, one of its central shopping districts, once retail is allowed to reopen. A hill... Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who hosts The Urbanist here on Monocle 24, explained the proposal for us on The Globalist today. At first it looks a bit bonkers, but the people behind it are MVRDV, which is this amazing Dutch architectural firm. Vinnie Mas is the guy there who's our go-to. He's spoken often at Monocle events. Wiry head, energetic, very inspiring architect. And he's done things like the the solo bridge in Seoul, no surprise there, which was a, a piece of of disused flyover highway which he turned into a walkable park a bit like the High Line they thought that a few thousand people would come and see that they had something like a million visitors in the first month now I think that that's why he's been brought on here he has this ability to make people excited by what seem to be quite small interventions and bring in crowds and crowds of people so this is a hill I think it's, it's roughly 28 metres high you'll go around on one route of it it doesn't look that exciting what it does is it puts a kind of a plug in this hole that's at the end of Oxford Street between there and Hyde Park round marble arch which is all roads and hideousness so you can now wander this this kind of old boulevard this kind of sense of London you'd go down Oxford Street you'd go round the hill and you'd end up in Hyde Park. Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck there speaking to us on The Globalist today. Carlotta you produced The Urbanist here on Monocle 24 what was your reaction to this to this design are you looking forward to clambering up this city centre hill uh, if all goes smoothly with the the planning and the construction of it? Well if my fitness allows after a year stopped at home (laughs) I will definitely try my best Uh, but this is actually touches upon something that you know Andrew and I have discussed several times on the show uh, on The Urbanist which is about this idea of uh, reinventing um, the high street reinventing retail and one thing that has become uh, you know quite important we need to remember is particularly in this case of Oxford Street uh, a fifth of its stores have permanent shut down and at the mo- because of the pandemic and at the moment obviously everything is closed because of lockdown so I don't think the public has um, really understood just how big the impact is because everything is closed uh, but once it's allowed to open uh, to reopen we'll be able to actually see how much is gone but this goes back to an important conversation we've had many times which is about you know reinventing the high street and the need for experiences you know when we think back about what made you know Selfridges or the very first uh, department store so exciting to the 
the public was, yes, you would go and shop, but you had experiences in them too. Uh, and this, you know, climbable hill overlooking, you know, Marble Arch, uh, one of London's uh, landmarks next to one of the uh, cities or the world's biggest shopping destinations um, is exciting, you know. And for now, they say it's going to operate for around six months, starting in the summer. Um, but it will have a viewing platform for people, but also in do- inside there will be um, a few rooms for events and exhibitions and pop-ups, um, which is quite nice to see. Uh, now, of course, um, we need to uh, be wary that at the moment um, with coming out of lockdown and all of that, people will want more outdoors experiences. So I think this is quite um, a perfect, I wouldn't say solution, but something quite good that is coming to Oxford Street, which can help uh, a lot of those stores that have been boarded up for the past 12 months to uh, bounce up back again. And Henry, just finally and briefly to you, what's the tone of the conversation in New York City where you are about reinvigorating high streets, retail areas, once things reopen again uh, in New York? So the city has rolled out uh, what it's calling an open storefronts programme, which is a complement to its open restaurants programme, which enabled restaurants to uh, serve food in seating areas which are on the street. Basically, it's allowing stores to sell their wares on the street, at least until things open up again. Um, So that's a kind of short-term solution, uh, obviously, to what's been a big blow to... um, to retail uh, in the city. Uh, in terms of what's going to happen after the pandemic, I think people are just hoping uh, things are going to go back to normal. There aren't any hills planned that I'm aware of. But of course, if, if one does spring up, you'll be the first to, uh, to hear about it, Thomas. We're glad to hear it, Henry. Henry Rees Sheridan and Carlotta Rabello, thanks very much to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Thank you, as always, to Steph Chungu. She edited today's programme for us in London. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye.